This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, hey, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. It's time to log in and get chronically online. Oh my God, what is that? Chronically Online is where we dissect the biggest trends on the internet. And I, Every meme, mess, and microtrend comes from somewhere. I love cones. Mmm, cones. And we're going to unravel, unpack, and recontextualize the most interesting viral trends. Welcome to part four on your guide to entering your villain era. So for today's video, it's going to be a giant, giant, giant sheen haul. Here's some ways on how to activate your divine feminine energy. Because what happens online doesn't happen by accident. The girls that get it, get it. And the girls that don't, don't. It's time to get Last week, the popular hip-hop media influencer, DJ Academics, inked a deal with none other than Rumble, the same parent company that platforms former President Donald Trump's social media site, Truth Social. And that's just one example of how some men in hip-hop music and media have been edging towards more extreme right-wing ideologies. DJ Academics himself touts some extreme ideas, particularly around women. They're looking at you like a wallet. So when you are dealing with these chicks, you got to objectify them. You got to look at them just as a sexual object. And he's massively popular. We're talking 5.2 million Instagram followers, 2.8 million YouTube followers. And that's not even counting the number of people he reaches through his live streams on Twitch. Y'all are appetizers. That's a fact. I'm trying to tell the truth. Today, we're looking at what I see as the darker side of hip-hop. The move away from critiquing the establishment to embracing its ideals. And to put a finer point on it, I feel like a specific segment of hip-hop media is saying the quiet part out loud. Media figures like DJ Academics are not just sharing conservative views here and there anymore. It's becoming their business model. And my guest... Andre G. wrote about all of this for Rolling Stone. Andre, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Tell me, where do you think DJ Academics fits into the current hip-hop media landscape? I would say it's his modern equivalent to just any, like, radio star personality. Like a shock jock. Shock jock, yes. That's the phrase. Shock jock would have their show, uh, you know, and they're just going on for hours, two or three hours at a time, maybe more. About, like you said, just whatever's happening in a news cycle, he's pretty adept at, like, putting himself in the middle of stories in ways that rap media and actual journalists don't do. His propensity for being adversarial with artists, getting into tips with artists, that allows him to then have content that he can stream about and talk about. He hardly exists in a vacuum. I mean, you know, you got people like Charlemagne the God and even Joe Budden, who you know, was a former collaborator of DJ Academics. They're arguably two of the biggest voices in Black media and, you know, all men, I might add. And they kind of regularly espouse a sort of like machismo that is just really popular with audiences. All of these people have huge platforms. Who 
is listening to him and what are they vibing with? Well, I think he's also on some level like entertaining to some men. Like you'll see his clips where he's like berating women. Do hot girls get in relationships? No, no. A lot of y'all are side pieces in disguise. Y'all are acting like the entrees. Y'all are straight side pieces. Just espousing pretty like misogynistic views. Until you cheat on a chick or show you're willing to cheat on a chick, you'll never earn a respect. I think a lot of like men, unfortunately, under a patriarchal system, they align with those values. And so he shares a lot of those same views, but in a very like colorful, I don't care kind of manner. And I believe that people align with a lot of his views on life and being a man and being a powerful man and being with and what that means and how that means you should treat people. It's interesting that he's going to be taking this kind of semi-open forum call and response kind of come as you are format and taking it to a platform like Rumble. What does it say about where hip hop media is if one of its biggest voices is being platformed by the same parent company that also hosts Donald Trump's social media platform, Truth Social? I mean, he's speaking to people who I think at the core dehumanize artists and view the beef and the violence around rap as entertainment, as like fandom in the mm. same way they would like a comic book series. Like I said, just a fan who enjoys the music, but then also enjoys the violence and the drama on a voyeuristic gossipy level. I think that's his core audience. I want to give some of the listeners, if they're unfamiliar, a, a clearer sense of DJ Academics, like sound and sensibility. You know, for example, Andrew Tate is popular. One of the things that people like with him is kind of like what some people like with Trump. They're like, yo, you say it. I won't say it because I don't want to get in trouble or get canceled. Yeah. But I'm going to tune into you saying it and I'm going to give you the attention uh, um, for you saying it. Vlad, I'm, look at, look at how many Vlad, I'm definitely voting for Trump next time. Wait, you're voting for Trump? What? Yes, I'm definitely voting for Trump. I'm 100%. For him to align himself with Trump, say that he's voting for him, and to see some of himself or his own commentary in the way that Trump speaks. How does someone like DJ Academics get there? Like, why is he seeing those parallels? Why does he feel connected to someone like Trump? Like, what is all that about? A lot of hip hop figures always kind of idolized Trump or like amplified him as like a symbol of wealth or something to aspire to. I mean, as a wealthy man who has a strong brand and has a lot of money, that's what a lot of entertainers are aspiring towards. But then once he becomes president, then you see like a lot of the fascist policies that that mindset, that that profit above all mentality is tied to. Trump embodies like the powerful male under capitalism, under this American system. And I think that's what people prioritize about him. The kind of talk that you're describing is something that I think we see in a lot of other places in culture, specifically, you know, Andrew Tate, who also has a deal with Rumble, right? Who's become an incredibly popular, quote unquote, men's rights figure, who many people feel shares misogynistic views, you know, sun up to sun down every single day. It kind of sounds like there's a tenor of conversation that is appealing to many men right now, men across different demographics, right? So maybe some people are being served by Andrew Tate, but it sounds like what you're saying is sort of like 
maybe people who who share some of those views and and align with that sort of thinking, but also are looking for hip hop commentary, can find all of that through DJ Academics. Yeah, I think he emulates a lot of that same manosphere, quote unquote, philosophy through a hip hop lens. They preach a lot of individualism, mm. a lot of like you're on your own journey through life. You want to make as much money as possible. You want to be as successful as possible. You don't need any woman unless they ascribe to like these popular notions of what a woman should be in terms of like beauty standards or, you know, these classes standards of like what a woman can do for you. All of this is happening as hip hop has gone from critiquing the establishment to kind of becoming the establishment, at least from like an industry perspective and like a business perspective. I mean, to take it a step further, in the past few years, we've seen some of the biggest names in hip hop, like Kanye West and DaBaby, platform deeply anti-Semitic and homophobic things and ideas. And those men are just two examples, right? What is this shift from anti-establishment to establishment say about where hip-hop culture and hip-hop media are headed? Yeah, I feel like it's a reflection of hip-hop being like a playground, basically, for men, like Black men specifically, where they have a power within the sphere of hip-hop that they don't necessarily enjoy in other communities and other industries, I believe. So I feel like, unfortunately, we're just going to continue to see this dynamic of men espousing patriarchal views becoming the norm and becoming more platformed. Unless, you know, you have more artists who get amplified, who have like more views that are rooted in dismantling some of the constructs that create this environment, that create patriarchy. But I don't know how likely that is, unfortunately. One of the things that I think about a lot when I think about the role of hip hop journalists, especially the role that they played since like, you know, the seventies, eighties, nineties in shaping the legacy and sort of keeping the legacy or even creating the legacy of hip hop, right? This year, hip hop turns 50. There's so many people who have done amazing work like Dream Hampton. And I'm thinking of people who have been doing really incredible, really well thought out, really well-researched work that serves as like a way of legacy keeping for hip hop. If we are losing some of that right now, or if some of that work is being drowned out rather right now by figures like academics or by these commentators who are more invested in stoking the basest impulses of their audience, right? (laughs) For clicks and views, people who are interested in mess and gossip and violence, If those are the voices that are more prominent now, I wonder for you as a fan, how does that make you feel about where hip hop's legacy could be headed? One thing when it comes to like the rap media personality versus like the journalist who has like a genuine passion for the music, I think the difference um, between the two spheres is like motivation. Like, what are you doing it for? I think like when you mentioned like the Dream Hamptons, the people who help basically like mythologize and document our culture for years. I think they did it because it was based in a passion for the music and the artists and the themes and the potential of hip hop versus a lot of rap media figures. Now the motivation is views and clicks. Like you said, it's more of a hustle than anything. So then you, you see, 
academics going to a right-wing platform because they gave them a nice bag, or you see them, no jumper, interviewing a Richard Spencer because they get a lot of views. It's just like a one-to-one of, okay, how can I monetize this? It's just like another example of like the corporatization and the profit above all mentality. Like we've seen it with artists and now we're seeing it in the media. Yeah, I mean, how I feel about that, it it sucks. I mean, I just try to pay attention to the journalists I know who are doing good work and hope that at some point we can have an infrastructure where the outlets that used to house them and be havens for them get more amplified and, and have the resources to place them back where I think they deserve to be. Hmm. Well, Andre, thank you so, so much for joining me today on It's Been a Minute. It is great to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you for having me. Now, I have my own thoughts on all this. As we're talking about this platforming of misogynistic views in hip-hop media, it's clear that women who make hip-hop music are killing it. Like, from aesthetics to lyricism, it's women who are pushing hip-hop forward. Rappers like Dochi, Lorilla, Rico Nasty, Megan Thee Stallion. I mean, I could go on. And I can't help but wonder if this rise in misogynistic content from men is connected to women's dominance in hip-hop right now. We see power treated as a zero-sum game. And as women gain power, whether in hip-hop, politics, the workplace, we've seen men time and again claw back. I'll be thinking about that the next time I see a clip of DJ Academics go viral. Coming up... We're switching gears and sitting down with the comedian Bridget Everett. We're going to laugh, we're going to cry, and we're even going to sing a little. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Osea. Elevate your summer with Osea's Best Sellers Body Care Set. It's everything you need for radiant summer skin on the go, featuring travel sizes of Osea's clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral skincare, like their best-selling Undaria Algae Body Oil. Right now, you can get the Best Sellers Body Care Set, a $78 value, 33% off, and use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. Go to OSEAMalibu.com, code SUMMER. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. 
When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. What are some of your favorite vocal warm-ups? The thing that I really like to do the most is like, um... <laughs> what? <laughs> because it loosens your, like, situation back there. Well, you there. just did the snort. That's the, that's the warm-up. Yeah, that's one of the things that you do to sort of, like, keep it, um... To sort of... <laughs> that snort you just heard came from actor, producer, and cabaret singer Bridget Everett. She's one of the stars and creators of a show I absolutely adore. Somebody Somewhere on HBO. The show centers on Bridget's character, Sam, a spirited but withdrawn 40-something who recently returned to her hometown of Manhattan, Kansas. That's where Bridget's from, too. It's literally called The Little Apple. (laughs) The Little Apple, exactly. (laughs) The series opens as Sam tries to come to terms with the recent death of her older sister and follows as she embarks on new friendships and men's old family bonds. I sort of think of it as like, a slice of life, and ultimately it's about not giving up on yourself. It's a perfect comfort watch. It's quiet, sweet, and laugh-out-loud funny. Nice underpants. They're my mom's. Vintage. She's great taste. She's a (laughs) sopper. And season two of Somebody Somewhere is about to drop on April 23rd. I sat down with star and executive producer Bridget Everett at the NPR studio to sing a little, cry a little, and laugh at the most universally funny topic in human history. A quick warning, this segment contains explicit language and references to sexuality that may not be suitable for all listeners. Bridget Everett, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh. My absolute so pleasure. So cool. I walked in the NPR building. I feel, you know, I feel pretty good. <laughs> I'm glad, glad we kept it very legit for you today. Yeah. <laughs> On Somebody Somewhere, your character, Sam, she frequently makes up like little ditties. Yeah. She frequently makes up little songs here and there. I wonder, what's your favorite of them that we could share <laughs> on NPR? Well, I personally have a blue sense of humor. So, like, when Sam gets to, like, let one rip, I like to put a little bit of my own personal spin on it, mm. um, which can involve, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman with a lot of parts. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but like one of them is something that I used to sing with my friend, like back in the 90s, because I would always forget my keys. It was like, keys, phone, cash ID, keys, yes. phone. That's something that I do every day. I like to sort of sing to myself and sing to the people around me, just dumb little things. <laughs> well, so, I mean, it works. <laughs> I guess I'm on HBO now, so maybe it's maybe it was smart. Maybe it was smart. Maybe it was smart. <laughs> so, so on that note, HBO, you got this amazing show, Somebody Somewhere. It's coming back for its second season. One of the things that we've been talking about um, on our team as we're preparing to talk to you, um, in one of the meetings that we were in, I realized that I was the only, as I said, country mouse. <laughs> Everybody uh-huh. else is from a city, <laughs> and I think that this show does a really great job of capturing what it's like to be squarely in adulthood, right? Like not like 25, 26, like squarely in adulthood, um, old enough to have maybe some ghosts and some regrets, um, but to be going through all of those things and experiencing them within the small town that you grew up. I really have enjoyed like sort of the pace of the show. I think that you captured how it feels really accurately. That that makes me happy to hear because basically we didn't want to do anything that kind of looks down on the Midwest in any way. I just want to celebrate it. And really it is... You know, it's a really 
great place to grow up. I'm so happy I grew up in Kansas. I couldn't get away fast enough, but I don't. We just don't want to do anything like snarky. We want to do something kind, I guess. Mm. Executive producer Carolyn Strauss called somebody somewhere a coming of middle age story, which I thought was so interesting. I feel like so many narratives in TV and film are concerned with like hitting specific markers of adulthood, like. Mm-hmm parenting, you know, having kids, purchasing a home, like climbing up the career ladder. And Sam's not really concerned about any of those things. To me, Sam seems like she's in the process of defining herself for herself outside of any of those things. I wonder, is there like a like a a point of self-definition that you hope that Sam gets to? I think that for Sam, and I think for a lot of people, like not everything has to be marriage, kids, you know, white picket fence, um, career, all that. I think Sam is more inch by inch. I'm kind of like that too. Like I always think about what's right in front of me. I don't think about like, I want to do this in my career. I want to have this kind of personal life. I just sort of take it day by day. And I think that that's something you don't really see on TV because it could be kind of boring because there's not (laughs) a lot going on. But we really try to show Sam's internal life and her growth as slow as it is. Mm. But I think it's hard because she kind of put herself in a, in a self-seclusion for like 15 or 20 years, and I can relate to that. I guess I'm trying out being a people person. How's that working for you? I'm not sure. <laughs> and thinking about how to sort of pull yourself out of that and meeting somebody like Joel, who's like so full of life and full of direction and full of purpose. And right? Joel's her best friend. And Joel's her best friend, well, yeah, she's exactly. kind of reunited with like yeah. a high school friend she reunites with and they just stick to each other. Yeah. And I think the thing, you know, she'd probably still be on her own if he wasn't so undeniable. He's so warm and sweet and I don't want to say non-threatening, but I guess non-threatening. He just has a gentleness about him. What I love about the story is about how somebody like that can sort of slowly bring you back to life. And it it is a slow burn. It is a slow crawl. You know, I, I have friends that have been putting in a lot of work with me for a lot of years <laughs> and, um, I guess that's kind of what we're trying to do. <laughs> mm, no, I mean... How'd I do? No, you, you did good. Are but, we doing okay? <laughs> I noticed that when you talk about Sam, you, you kind of almost talk about Sam and yourself, not completely interchangeably, but sort of noticing that there are some similarities between you as a person and also who Sam is, like, at her core as a character. I mean, you know, you've said in interviews before that Sam is kind of like who you would be if maybe you had never left Manhattan, Kansas, where you're actually from, and that the show is in some ways semi-autobiographical. Has the show allowed you to reflect on yourself or moments from your life in a a different way? Yeah, absolutely. I think the themes in Sam's life are very similar to mine. Right. And she takes bigger emotional swings than I would, even though they're small. (laughs) Like, I think there's a lot I can learn from her and a lot of me that's infused in her. And specifically with my own family, you know, we have a sister who passed away. And so what's great about doing this show for me is I never really dealt with my grief. And my family and I, we don't talk about it. If we do anything, you know, we're very... Midwestern, at least our family, has a way of deflection. You know, we sort of like deflect a lot with humor and don't really talk about her. So the show has been a way to kind of think about my own grief and think about the way grief infects your life, how it at first it's so overwhelming, but then how it just sort of pops up one day and and totally takes your breath away. And so in season two, when Sam is dealing with her sister and you know, my own sister and I, we don't have the kind of relationship where we're having these like 
conversations about how we really feel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we just don't do that. And Sam and Trisha, her sister, really get at it because Trisha is making Sam talk about things. She's pushing her, but Sam also kind of can't help herself. And like, I feel that way sometimes. And like, I want to be able to talk about this and, and we just don't do it. And, and Sam does. And like, in the, in the, in the way that your family can kind of lay you bare or sort of strip you to the, you know, just hit your nerve in, in, in like one second and how it can completely unravel you. And, and that's why I I love the season two arc with with Trisha, her sister, because I feel like Trisha is growing and Sam is just stuck. I don't know. No, I, I'm glad. You, I'm literally that was my next question oh. <laughs> about the sister dynamic. So I am the middle of three sisters. Okay, that's a lot. Uh, yeah, a lot going, <laughs> a lot going on. Um, really lively household I had growing up. Yeah, I'm the youngest of six, so I have the sibling situation too. Oh yeah, yeah. It's all. I mean, it, it, this is this is the thing. The sister dynamic on the show between Sam and Trisha, and Trisha is like Sam is like a creative. Like in her spirit, she wants to be a performer, and Trisha is very traditional by the book. And I won't give away too much for people who haven't seen the show, but. In the first season, you really see how that didn't quite work out for Trisha the way right. that she thought it would. So it's interesting to see these people who are so different be forced to interact all the time, which yeah. is like, I mean, what is family? But a bunch of people who are very different, yeah. who uh, learn to be in relationship bound with each blood. other, bound by blood. <laughs> I mean, but the sister dynamic, the sibling dynamic was it, it, between them is, is so sharp. Like they will hit each other below the belt. You know what, Sam? I don't know when you think that real life starts, but you are well over 40. So you're past the point. Real life's happening right now, okay? Great. You know what? I got to go. But then we'll turn around and sometimes be the first person to come to the other's rescue. How did you go about carefully building that dynamic? Well, we didn't want Trisha to just be a bitch. You know, she's a, first of all, Mary Catherine, who plays Trisha, is an incredible actor. And you want to give her all the room in the world to do as, as much as possible because... She's so dynamic. And we lived, we were roommates for eight years. So I've seen it all from her. You know, like and she's seen mine. You know, we 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 have the dirt on each other. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that kind of happens a lot. You see, like, oh, there's a sister, she's kind of one note, she's a bitch, and then maybe she redeems herself later. But I I think we all wanted Trisha to have friends and a family, but like her her life kind of unravels. It's like everybody is doing the best they can, and things never really work out for any of us the way that we we hope to. And another thing I wanted to add is that, you know, Holly, the sister that, you know, we start the series off and, and she's she's been dead for, you know, six months or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she was kind of the buffer. Right. So Trisha and Sam are kind of learning to live with each other without that. In my personal life, my sister who passed away was like, you know, she was she believed in me. She loved me. She cared for me in kind of like sort of a chaotic household. She was mm-hmm. gentle and maternal and loving. And that's how I think about Holly, who's passed away. Mm-hmm. But I love that Sam and Trisha are finding a way, as painful as it is, to discover each other and to and to live with each other because they that they have the common bond of family and they're not giving up on each other as much as... Mm-hmm. I think Sam perfectly, if he would have started off in season one, she would have been happy to never have a relationship with Trisha. So a big a big plot line in season two revolves around, euphemistically, we'll say, a pillow of Trisha's, she's selling online or selling, you know, that says, lying, see you next Tuesday. Yeah. 
Okay. Let's say, let's yeah. say. Eventually, I mean, Trisha grows to have Legion pillows with sassy sayings on yeah. them. <laughs> if you had to have one of Trisha's pillows in your home, what would it say? Well, I do have some of those pillows because <laughs> I definitely like when we were wrapping that day, I was like, oh, you don't mind if I take a couple of those do you for the house? <laughs> um, I like, you know, there's a live, laugh. See you next Tuesday. Yeah, live, laugh, you know, I'll mm-hmm. see you there. You know what I mean? <laughs> that makes me laugh. I, and what's so funny about it is, you know, like there's a line in the pilot where, where Sam was like, there she is. Like there, Sam knows that there is like... Trish is always putting on a front, right? You know, when we first meet her, but like, she's just like Sam underneath it. Yeah. But also Sam is more like Trisha than she thinks she is. And the, the fact that they can come together on these pillows is really delightful for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think everybody should have one of those pillows in their house. I mean, oh. there used to be a time when I didn't say that word for a long, long time. But mm-hmm. now I feel like I like saying it. And for me, <laughs> it's power. I'd like to be super, <laughs> super C, you know? Super um, just something. Uh, actually, you know, I'm sick of going by Bridget Everett on stage. I'm gonna start going by Super C. <laughs> I, I honestly, I feel like stock's gonna go up. I feel like stock's yeah. gonna go up if you do that. I, I stand with the camp, Camp C, Camp C. <laughs> Coming up, Bridget on the relationship at the heart of the show, and why she owns a golden toilet. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The relationship between Sam and her BFF, Joel, it is so beautiful. Their love is really the center of, I think, of the show. He's exactly the friend that everyone wishes that they had, right? And if you have a friend like that, then you cherish that person. And it, it seems almost like, to me, the whole show is framed around Joel's outlook on life. Like... 
in the sense that the show, I think, is really about people who want to be connected to one another. Yes. Sam fights that to some degree. I don't think maybe you want to do all this. You know, I don't. I don't know if I'm really friend material. So just you want me thinking that we're gonna be okay. Okay, you want to do some Zumba? No. <laughs> but Joel is so open and earnest. He's always looking for ways to like create community or say hi to somebody, right, or cheer them up. I, I wonder how does that tension, that tension between Sam's inclination to sort of close off and lean back and hide away and Joel's inclination to open up and, and welcome others in. How does that, how does that tension drive the show? I, I think it's so interesting that you said that that's sort of like his perspective is kind of what drives the show. I think that's really smart. I'd never thought about that before, but I do think it's, it's true. Like Jeff Hiller who plays Joel, if, you know, he's incredible. If, oh, he's so incredible. I think that what he brings to the character and it's a lot who he is, is like a, a warmth and a, and a humor that kind of just allows Sam to to view life in a different way, which I think when you're in your 40s is really hard. And when you're at this age, you need somebody who's going to sort of come at you from, you know, nowhere and sort of knock you off your feet and, and lift you back slowly. And that's what he does. Mm, that's I think that's that's a really beautiful way to put it. There's a moment that I think really speaks to Joel and Sam's relationship that happens in season two. I will not get into explicit detail for those who have sensitive uh, you know, sensitive spirits, but there is an extended poop joke between yeah. Sam and Joel in season two. And like, I, I feel like that speaks to their intimacy, right? The fact that's that like, exactly poop is kind of the, the, I had the something, thing you don't talk about. Yeah, I think it's exactly what we want to do something that would speak to their, their level of inti- intimacy. And this feels about as intimate as you could get. But um, I had something like this happen and something similar happened in my real life. And... <laughs> And I and, and and I was like, oh my god, like we are good friends. <laughs> you know, yeah. We are really good friends. I mean, I, I don't want to like overly describe. But I mean, basically, each character has some awareness. Well, that, let me just say the other person. Yeah. I bought myself this golden toilet um, as a wrap gift for season two. That is a toilet charm you have hanging from yeah. this chain around your neck. It was really it's darling. Wait, does it open and close yeah, it like opens. that? Oh, that's a, cute. Yeah. So I anyway because I I think it's a reminder also to just you know, not take life too seriously. And I, and I realize that, you know, maybe not everybody's going to, we might lose a few people because <laughs> not everybody thinks farts are funny, but I do. <laughs> Guess what? I'm number one on the call sheet and an executive producer. So it stays. <laughs> also, we see Sam throughout the, the show kind of use art and performance and really singing as like an avenue for growth or like almost like for us as the viewer, like a litmus test of sort of where she is. One of the most heartbreaking moments of, of this season was when your character, Sam was doing a singing lesson and the teacher who's like a high school, like choir teacher of hers, right. It it is decided to take up, you know, doing lessons with her again. The teacher guides her through the warmups and Sam becomes overcome by the feelings that it brings up and she just leaves. It seems like the thing that she loves most is almost like too painful for her to do, like singing this thing that like there's there's all these moments throughout the show where we see Sam really expressing herself and feeling free when she's singing as long as she feels safe. But also there's all these other moments where singing almost feels impossible for her to do because she loves it so much. Yeah. Singing makes you happy. Yeah, it makes me happy. 
but it also breaks my heart. How do you relate your relationship to singing to that moment or, or that feeling within Sam? Well, I understand it. You know, it's there because it's the way I feel about music and singing. It feels like it's like when Sam sings, especially something emotional that, you know, it it's kind of confronting her. Lift me to my feet again. I've lost touch. I need a friend. You brought me home. You know, it's like because it's undeniable, like when when Sam sings a song that she sings in in the voice, it's like I can't even talk about it because it's just all so connected for me and for Sam. It's like it's it's a love that's so deep and so personal. You know, it's just it's a great love of her life. It's and I just can't talk about it. It's interesting that you have such like a similar reaction to Sam about about singing. Like it strikes this emotional chord for you when it's, you know, the thing that perhaps, you know, before this show you, you were most known for you have this huge personality on stage where you're like belting out and playing with the audience and it seems like it's also still this thing that's very sacred for you though in a similar way yeah but you know in in that way it's a lot about like singing about different body parts and keeping it light and keeping it fun Mm -hmm. and and but i still i sing ballads with my band and and all that but it's just it's just i guess i have a little work to do just like sam does (laughs) (laughs) anyway I think there's something that, that the singing teacher says to Sam, you know, it's like, it's almost too much to bear. And I think that that is, it's true. It's like, I, I feel like Sam faces her pain when she sings because it's the way that she knows how to communicate. And she hasn't been singing for so long. That's why. It's like this, it's like the, like the channel through which she can kind of really truly express yeah. herself. Yeah. It makes it tender. Barbara Walters 2.0. <laughs> I really don't intend for this. No, I mean, I don't, I'm, and I feel like silly, like how emotional it makes me. But it just it's just, you know, when we were talking about season two, I really wanted to have like some more about the singing and about that relationship because it's what gives her wings. You know, she hasn't had wings for a long time. Hmm. So I think what Sam was learning is like, it doesn't have to be just one person that can kind of give you life. You know, it can be it can be sing. It can be a lot of things at the same time. Hmm. That's such a really beautiful way of putting it. Like you have to have multiple lifelines. Yeah. I want to go back to your hometown for a second. I would love to know from you, what is the thing that you love most about Manhattan, Kansas? The chef, the Florentine frittata, the chef. I love, I I, I sort of, you know what I love most is the thing that I, that I ran from is like community. Like I, like, I don't know, there was like this, the small townness of it. I couldn't get away from fast enough. But now I, I sort of need it. Mm. I know you're a songstress. Mm-hmm. Would you be so kind if you could do this the honor of making up just a little ditty, a little something short? Could be about NPR. Could be about me. Could be about the show. Could be about you. Whatever we talked about today. It's been a minute since I felt this nice. It's been a minute since I felt so good. It's been a minute since I've lived my life the way that I want to live. <laughs> That's beautiful. That wasn't very good. I could do better. But, you know, I, I come on, I, it's early in the morning. I haven't had my third cup of coffee. 
And I couldn't sing about genitals, so I, I tried to do something sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Look, nobody else has come on this show and bust out in a song like that. So this is a first. Okay. This I is can, a first. I can do better if, it, if, if, if we were about to sing about the C word, but I know we're not supposed to do that. No, we're not supposed to do that. Yeah. You know, I love NPR. Can I get a tote bag? <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Bridget, thank you so much for coming on the thank show you. today. It was a pleasure to have you very proud that I get to be on NPR and with you and this has been a really great chat thank you very much thanks again to Bridget Everett star and executive producer of Somebody Somewhere on HBO the new season is out April 23rd this episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood Alexis Williams Liam McBain Corey Antonio Rose this episode was edited by Bilal Qureshi engineering came from Stacey Abbott our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.